0: hello hi this is andrew and this is on the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers hello everybody it is wednesday march the 15th 2023 it's early afternoon in san francisco on the west coast of the united states Uh, The markets have just shut here. They've shut on Wall Street. But somewhere, somewhere, the markets have opened on our global financial carousel. And the global capital markets are in bad shape today. The markets shudder, according to the New York Times, as bank fears are going global from where I am on the west coast of the United States and the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. The Uh, The earthquake, the ramifications of of this bank failure seem to have affecting more and more uh, markets around the world. Uh, Wall Street Journal describes this as market stress, snarling treasuries trading, a stock slide, Uh, There's a lot of pessimism. Um, It's become global. The Financial Times leads with the crisis of the Swiss, uh, a credit Swiss and the need for at least from the point of view of Credit Suisse, for the Swiss central bank to step in. Banks are in crisis. There's a lot of moral discussion as well about whether or not Washington should have saved Silicon Valley banks' depositors, many of which are wealthy technology companies or individuals. Uh, One man who's given a great deal of thought to this systemic crisis is my guest today, Richard Duncan. Uh, he has a, a video blog called Macro Watch, uh, and he also has a new book out. Uh, he uh, called um, the Money Revolution. It came out last year. Richard is a former uh, global head of investment strategy at ABN uh, Amro uh, Asset Management in London, and he now lives in Thailand. and He's joining us from New York just to make that global point, Richard. Um, is there a systemic crisis, or is is all this a bit of a storm in the teacup?
1: Hello, Andrew. It's nice to meet you. Thank thank you for having me on. Well, this has the potential of being a systemic crisis. Yes, uh, I think people know the know most of the details or the facts. So uh, of the Silicon Valley bank failure, but there's some interesting aspects that they probably are don't realize yet. You know, the story for SVB is that it got a lot of deposits during 2020 and 2021. It invested some of those deposits in long-term government bonds and mortgage-backed securities. And then interest rates started going up very sharply. So as interest rates went up, they, the, the bonds they held lost value. And then they started losing deposits as financial and economic conditions got tougher last year. Their depositors started pulling out some of their money. That meant that the bank needed to sell some of its assets to cover those deposits that were leaving. And when it sold those, some of those bonds, it made a loss of $1.8 billion. And that loss then caused the, their depositors to become even more worried. So they pulled out more deposits. The share price tanked. Suddenly, there was a run on the bank and the bank failed now what's interesting about this is that it wasn't just silicon valley bank that had a big surge in deposits in 20 and 2020 and 2021 and it's not just silicon valley bank that is losing a lot of deposits now the reason the reason deposits surged so much total bank deposits surged by an unprecedented 35% in just 2 years between 2021, uh, 20 and 20, 2021. And the reason that happened was because of all the government stimulus. The government was sending out stimulus checks to American households and to businesses. They deposited that money into their banks. So bank deposits surged. And this was all financed indirectly by the Fed, which created more than $4 trillion during those two years to help the government finance that stimulus at low interest rates. So quantitative easing is the reason bank deposits surge, not just at SVB, but in the entire banking sector. Well, now what's happening for the last many months is the Fed is doing the opposite of quantitative easing. Rather than creating money and pumping it into the financial system, the Fed is now destroying money through quantitative tightening. And that's causing deposits to begin to shrink not only at SVB, but in the entire banking system. So when SVB failed, suddenly financial analysts realized that it wasn't alone. There are many other banks that are in a similar position. And as long as the Fed continues to destroy money through quantitative tightening, that's going to cause the entire system deposits to, to shrink, forcing more banks perhaps to sell their bonds at a loss potentially tipping them into crisis in exactly the same sequence of events that brought SVB down
0: Richard let's connect it has Richard let's connect this with the main thesis of your book the money revolution how to finance the next American century you have some strong and, and sometimes rather unorthodox arguments about money supply and what the fed should and shouldn't do you've laid out two so no, two 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 monetary policies. On the one hand, quantitative easing, when the the Fed printed money, especially during COVID, and then what you call quantitative tightening. Are they both problematic? Are you suggesting one is better than the other, or are you critical in the money revolution of the um, of the way in which the Fed? controls and perhaps undermines the financial economy not just in the united states but around the world
1: so i wouldn't say that i'm either critical or uh, praising the fed for what it's done rather i'm just analyzing what it's done and why it has done it Uh, there are three parts of the book the first two parts are history uh, beginning from the time the Fed was created in 1913. Uh, The first part is a history of the Fed. The second part is a history of credit. And then the third part part draws on the lessons that we can learn from that history to make policy recommendations for the future. Now, the, the Fed is very interesting because my approach to this Fed history is very unique. I tell the history of the Fed by analyzing changes in the fed's balance sheet so it changes on the liabilities side of the fed's balance sheet show precisely how the fed has created money and changes on the asset side of the fed's balance sheet shows precisely how the fed deployed the money it created and so by analyzing what the fed has done in this way you can see that very frequently the Fed was forced to come up with new monetary policy tools in response to crises like World War I, World War II, the crisis of 2008, and, that, and more recently the COVID pandemic. Um, and very, very often, in all of these cases, I would say the Fed really didn't have much of a choice. If it had not created a great deal of, during those periods, then our economy would have to a uh, great depression. Uh, uh, uh,
0: Richard, let me jump in here because we've done a number of shows on the Fed. Some are more more. Some of our guests have been more or less critical. One in particular I've had on the show a couple of times. The American uh, writer journalist uh, Christopher Leonard. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with his book, The Lords of Easy Money: How the Federal Reserve Broke the American Economy. He argues that back in 2008, 2009, the Fed printed money for the benefit of the wealthy.
1: Do you agree with that? No, I think the Fed created money at that time for the benefit of every American and and really everyone in the world because the U.S. economy is so important for the global economy. When when the crisis of 2008 occurred, the Fed looked back to at what had happened in 1930. So the lead up to the Great Depression was the Roaring 20s. We had a very big global credit bubble during the 1920s. In 1930, the credit couldn't be repaid. And the policymakers then believed in fair and market forces. So they didn't really do very much of anything. They just let stepped back and let market forces work. And of course, market forces did work. But unfortunately, they worked by causing the U.S. economy to contract by about 40% in nominal terms. And with unemployment going up to 25%, the country went into a Great Depression where it stayed for the next 10 years until World War II started. And only then did we have a massive government stimulus that put an end to the Great Depression. But unfortunately, 60 million people died during the Second World War. Now, this time, leading up to 2008, we had another big credit bubble in the United States and globally. And in 2008, the private sector couldn't repay the money it had borrowed. It started defaulting replay the 1930s. But this time, instead of letting market forces work, the policymakers did everything in their power to ensure that that didn't happen again, the, the US government ran trillion-dollar budget deficits for four years in a row to stimulate the economy, and the Fed created $3.5 trillion through three rounds of quantitative easing to help finance that government borrowing at low interest rates. And in that way, they prevented the bubble from imploding. They reflated the the bubble. So we didn't collapse into a new Great Depression. And things worked out really quite well for everyone. I'm not sure. I mean, uh, I don't want to speak on behalf
0: of Chris Leonard, but I think his response would be: it worked out very well for the upper middle class in America, less well for the 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 middle or the lower middle class and the working class. But that's another issue. Um, so
1: let's go back to your well, book. The money the lower middle class would have been very uncomfortable if they if one out of every four of them was unemployed, as was the case in the nineteen. 19- yeah. No, no, so your, your point's well taken, Richard. Uh, let's get to the
0: core of your book, The Money Revolution. Are you then a critic of the
1: Fed? What's the, the core thesis in the book? So the core thesis is this. When the United States stopped backing dollars with gold, that happened five decades ago. That fundamentally changed the way our economic system worked. In uh, in the following way, first of all, it allowed the Fed to create as much money as it dared. Up until then, the Fed had to have gold to create money, but that restraint was re- was removed. And the second point is, after gold ceased to be money ceased to be backed by gold, this meant that U.S. trade no longer had to balance, because when dollars were backed by gold, if the U.S. had a big trade deficit. It would have to pay for that deficit with its gold. So it would have have had to ship gold overseas to pay for its trade deficit. It would have quickly run out of gold and it would have stopped buying things from other countries. So the U.S. couldn't run big trade deficits back then. But afterwards, we realized pretty quickly that we could run extraordinarily large trade deficits with other countries and just finance it all on credit. And when we started having very big trade deficits with low wage countries like China and Vietnam, that turned out to be really very, very disinflationary. So this started in the early 1980s. At that time, inflation was in the double digits. But very quickly, as we started buying things from low wage countries, we inflation rate came down and down and down. And therefore, interest rates came down and down and down. And this was very uh, good for uh, the economy because it allowed American individuals and businesses to borrow m- much more cheaply and to consume more and to invest more and also drove up asset prices to very high levels. So and, and at the same time, it allowed the U.S. government to borrow more cheaply and to stimul- spend more money stimulating. There was economy. a virtuous so a virtuous didn- cycle
0: in a sense.
1: That's, well, that's right, as long as credit kept its expanding. But as I said, our, it caused our economy to evolve in a fundamental way in that our economy became addicted to credit growth. As long as credit kept expanding, everything was fine. In fact, better than fine. I say that it's reasonable to say that our economic system evolved from capitalism into creditism. Capitalism was an economic system that was driven by saving and investment and more saving and more investment. But that's not the way our system works anymore. Our economic system is driven by credit creation and consumption and more credit creation and more consumption. So as long as the credit keeps growing, everything's fine. So everyone, is what everyone's living on a
0: credit card. Is this what you mean when you talk about the dollar crisis uh, in, in your blog and the corruption of capitalism? Uh, and what you call the new depression, the breakdown of the money, of the paper money economy, you're suggesting a, a structural shift which is profound and dangerous and worrying. Is that correct?
1: But also one, that's correct, but one that also creates really unprecedented opportunities if we understand the nature of our new economic system and learn how to make the most. What important. about inequality? And that's um, what
0: the, uh richard um as i said I, I think some people perhaps on the left progressives like chris leonard believe that this is a system that is compounding inequality that it's not coinc it's not uncoincidental un- un- that as we have this profound shift in the nature of our financial economy there is also a, a profound chasm growing between the very wealthy and everybody else
1: Well, it's certainly true that income inequality is increasing. And if we as a nation uh, feel that that is inappropriate, then the American voters should vote for politicians who raise taxes on the wealthiest individuals. But that's not the focus of my book. The focus of my book is to propose that this new economic environment we are in gives the United States the opportunity to invest in new industries and new technologies on a multi-trillion dollar scale over the next decade. Because if we do, that would induce a new technological revolution that would turbocharge U.S. growth, which would cause everyone in the country to be better off, but it would also guarantee U.S. national security for generations to come. And most importantly, It would radically enhance human well-being because these sorts of investments in new industries and new technologies would really give us a shot at curing all the diseases, at radically expanding life expectancy, at uh, creating limitless, clean, cheap energy and rehabilitating the environment the Opportunity that now exists because our economic system has evolved from capitalism. No, I, of-
0: I don't. I'm not sure I understand, uh, Richard. Because if credit now has been tightened so dramatically, um, how could the American, uh, how could the Feds borrow so dramatically? Does this make you? We've had Stephanie Kelton on the show, one of America's leading economists when it comes to what's known as modern monetary theory. Does this make you a, a modern
1: monetary theorist? Well, I, I don't mention modern monetary theory in my book. And I've been developing these ideas long before I ever heard of modern monetary theory. So I don't want to um, try to defend modern monetary theory in its entirety. All I'm saying is that it would be very easy for the United States to finance a multi-trillion dollar investment in new industries and new technologies over the next 10 years. Things like investing in artificial intelligence, quantum computing, genetic engineering, biotech, nanotech, neurosciences, renewable energy, and robotics. And if we do, we're going to be radically better off. And this is, so for, for instance, in the second quarter of 2020, US government debt increased by $2.8 trillion in 90 days. And the Fed created roughly the same amount of money at roughly the same period. So that is a multi-trillion dollar expansion of government debt in just 90 days. Uh, that, didn't, you know, that didn't cause the sky to fall. That's not what I'm proposing. I'm proposing a multi-trillion dollar investment in these industries and technologies over a 10-year period. This is something that we could very easily do. The Chips and Science Act is a good first step in the right direction. $280 billion to be invested in new industries and technologies. $280 billion. Well, the $2.8 trillion increase in government debt in the second quarter of 2020 could finance the Chips and Science Act 10 times over. So that just gives you some idea of the capacity our government has to finance an investment on a very large scale.
0: So this is... It's obviously very attractive, um, uh, Richard, to, to anyone who is not dogmatically or ideologically opposed to the notion of debt. Um, I know that one of the reasons you're in the United States at the moment is that you were invited over by John Larson, uh, a congressman from Connecticut, to address the uh, the Ways and Means Committee in Washington D.C. Um, is this, though, an idea that is attractive amongst Democrats, but one that Republicans will shun? Is it a progressive idea? It sounds in some ways like the 21st century version of the New Deal.
1: So you're that's right. I, I'm here because I was invited to come and make a, a speech before 15 members of the Ways and Means Committee at a policy dinner in Washington at the end of February. And this is, this is what I told them. They were, they were Democrats. Um, and I believe that this would be a very attractive and winning platform for the Democrat part, Dem- Democratic Party to run on in 2024. The, the, the Republicans are essentially running on an austerity platform, which uh, is certain to cause the economy to stagnate And again, as it did the last time we had austerity and um, give China the time it needs to overtake us technologically, economically and militarily. Uh, uh, Americans don't want more stagnation and they don't want China to become a a national security threat to the United States and the world's leading superpower, which is going to become if we don't invest a lot more very quickly. So instead, I think the Democrats, in my opinion, should run on an investment platform, make it very clear and be very vocal that they are going to lead this country into the future by investing very aggressively in new industries and technologies. This is going to turbocharge the economy. We're not going to talk about GDP growth of one or two percent anymore. We're going to be looking at something more like five to seven percent GDP growth a year. And these investments are going to produce technological miracles and medical marvels, giving us a real shot at curing cancer and all the other diseases, radically expanding life expectancy and making the uh, making the economy grow so rapidly that these investments would actually cause the, the ratio of GDP to become lower rather than higher, because these investments would be so extraordinarily profitable. It's an attractive uh, idea,
0: Richard. Um, you you had an interesting piece in Newsweek. Um earlier this month uh, reminding Republicans that uh, Ronald Reagan knew that government spending is crucial to a thriving economy. If Reagan was around today, do you think he'd be sympathetic to your argument?
1: Well, so what President Reagan did was he had the U.S. government invest very aggressively in the U.S. military. And as a result of that government investment, that's what produced the very rapid economic growth of the 1980s. And that's also the reason the Soviet Union collapsed. So that was an extraordinarily winning formula. Government investment, economic growth, and uh, U.S.-American dominance for the next th- three decades. Uh, but the, the Republicans seem to ignore that. Uh, instead, they want to, to reduce government spending, which is certain to create stagnation and ultimately national shame and disgrace as we are now become the second leading power in the world. China will overtake us and we'll, we'll, we'll really be in danger. Already China's becoming uh, very uh, serious. Uh, Richard, national-
0: um, if if we had, I'm not a Republican, but if, if there was a Republican countering you, my guess is that they would say um, that America's debt is large enough that it's enslaving us to the financial markets or to, to the Chinese. Uh, the FT remind us that there's a looming game of chicken on, on U.S. debt. Isn't what you're saying, what, how, how would that compound the U.S. debt? Would it double it, triple it? And what does that actually even mean? Uh, are you suggesting that a massive U.S. debt doesn't really matter?
1: Well, so right now, the level of U.S. government debt relative to the size of the economy is 120%. Um, So the ratio of government debt to GDP is 120%. I I estimate that if $10 trillion over the next decade, and that every last cent of that is wasted and lost and contributes nothing positive whatsoever, that would take the ratio of government debt to GDP up to 150% 10 years from now, 150%. Japan's level of government debt to GDP is 260%. They were at 150% government debt to GDP 22 years ago. So in, in a scenario where we invest $10 trillion and waste every last penny and nothing good comes from it, our level of debt to GDP 10 years from now would be where Japan's was 22 years ago. Now, of course, if we invest on that sort of scale, it's going to make the economy very much larger it's going to make tax revenues skyrocket. So the level of debt would actually become, begin to come down. And, when, and, and, and here's the way that I propose that we uh, actually structure these investments. The US government could act as a giant venture capital firm with the US government entering into joint venture companies with the say 10,000 most promising and talented American entrepreneurs and scientists Setting up joint venture companies finances finances these joint venture companies lavishly in exchange for keeping an, a 60 percent equity stake in these companies. And the entrepreneurs and the manager and the scientists manage the companies, and in exchange, they keep a 40 percent equity stake. And when these companies start creating a cure for Alzheimer's disease and cure kidney disease and, and make fusion cheap, Then we list them on NASDAQ at trillion dollar valuations with the U.S. taxpayers keeping 60%. And this thing pays for itself many times over very quickly. And we cure all the diseases and have cheap energy and remain the the global economic superpower and secure our national security for generations to come. What about the political
0: ramifications of this Uh... I mean, you're selling me, but what do I know? And I, I can't even vote in the U.S. anyway. Isn't the point to sell it in an innovative way? A lot of people, I think people on the left in America would, would be in a way sympathetic, but then they would be also wary of your idea of transforming America into, or the American government or, or the Fed into a giant venture capital. Platform or network, because that's only compounded inequality. You're dancing around the the bigger political questions, which economists tend to do, uh, uh, Richard. But it, isn't that the heart of the matter? If you're gonna if you're gonna get what you want, you have to address the problems, the complexities, the
1: challenges of politics in America. I believe this this sort of uh, investment. Platform would be extremely popular with, with both sides of the political spectrum because, of course, the Republican Party was very big on making America great again very re- up until very recently, and uh, this would make America great again. It certainly would. This is the surest and perhaps the only but way. But you're to make rejecting it. Um, so should appeal. You, you,
0: yeah, you 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 talk about MAGA, make America great again if donald trump was on the show i think he would reject your basic economic premise he tends to view economics in an autarkic zero sum kind of way you reject that trumpian approach to economics don't you
1: well you know i'm not exactly i'm not really sure that he would uh, object to what i'm saying i think he might actually approve of it because i remember the night he was elected he went on television and he said we're going to have this country our government is going to invest in bridges and highways and airports. And we are going to have the, the best infrastructure in, in this world. Um, and we are going to make America great again. Uh, so, And he also w- was very vocal about encouraging the Fed to have even more quantitative easing to stimulate the economy further that way. So what I'm suggesting seems to be in, exactly in line with what, uh, what, he, what he called for. Richard, we began this conversation with
0: a discussion about the current systemic crisis of capitalism, the crisis of small banks as a consequence of over lending and then the consequence of inflation. If we do, if the American government does what you want it to do, wouldn't this create conditions for an even bigger crisis?
1: Well, I don't think so, but so so clearly.
0: Uh, I mean, but, book, but I, I, just to I, jump I'd in recommend- again,
1: well, the government, as you
0: as you explained at the beginning of this conversation, the government in for better or worse, the government invested tr- trillions of dollars in the economy as a consequence of the, the great recession of 1908 and uh, so 2008 and then COVID crisis. And as a consequence they saved the economy, but then the second consequence was today's systemic crisis. Why wouldn't that repeat itself if we do what you say we should do?
1: So you have to first give the government credit. If they had not, um, no, I take your not, point. I, I accept your point, but but
0: but why wouldn't? If, if, right. So pressure. if you invest, if we, if you're saying, and I'm sure you told Congressman Larson and the Ways and Means Committee that the U.S. should invest trillions of dollars in infrastructure, in technology, in, in, in business, which I, I'm rather sympathetic to, I have to admit. So what, why wouldn't that result in the same kind of crisis that we're going through today?
1: Well, what we're experiencing today is hardly um, uh, an all-out crisis, certainly nothing on the scale of what we saw in 2008. It looks like the measures the Fed introduced over the weekend have, have brought up to a speedy end. But the problem, the more serious issue, is that we do have high rates of inflation now. And so we would have to wait for the inflation to abate. And that's what I write in the book. The idea is we should invest as much as possible as quickly as possible. And if that begins to overheat the economy, then we can slow down the rate of investment until the bottlenecks causing the inflation are, are overcome, as they always are. So it's, it's quite likely that this year, before too much longer, we're going to have a recession. And when the recession occurs, people are going to lose their jobs. And then pro- the, the inflation is going to come down, as it always does. And once inflation is down, you know, during most of this century, so up until the pandemic, the Fed struggled to make the inflation rate go up to its 2% inflation target. They were struggling to prevent deflation during most of this century. And, and that's because of globalization. Globalization was so disinflationary by buying things from countries with ultra low wage wages that drove down prices here and was extremely disinflationary. So b- before too much longer, we're probably going to be back in a low inflation, low interest rate environment that would allow and even um, encourage the US government to invest more on in these new industries and technologies to stimulate the economy and to prevent deflation.
0: So you're suggesting that economics is by definition cyclical and that nothing is perfect and everything will result in some, if not crisis, some kind of problem or another, which will result in new scenarios, new problems and new opportunities.
1: So, history shows the economy is certainly cyclical, and there are always new crises originating from old reasons like wars, new reasons like pandemics. But our economic system has evolved in a fundamental way since dollars ceased to be backed by gold, as I show in the first two parts of the book. And this really creates a, a new opportunity, a kind of a unique moment in history where it would be easily possible for our government to borrow and for the Fed to finance a multi-trillion dollar investment in new industries and new technologies over the next decade. And the benefits of doing that would just be incredible. Uh, It would be a game changer. It would benefit everyone, not just the wealthy. Everyone would be far better off, not only financially, but also in terms of their their health and their children's future. You're a good salesman, Richard.
0: You've sold me on it. I'm not sure you'll sell certainly republicans um and i think a lot of people are going to be intrigued by your argument i know you run a a video blog called macro watch you have a uh like a good economist you have a special offer for keen on listeners and viewers what's the offer on uh macro watch
1: right so every couple of weeks i make a new video that i upload something in the global economy and how it's going to impact the asset prices and financial markets so your listeners can find MacroWatch on my website which is richardduncaneconomics.com richarddunc.com and if they'd like to subscribe um, use the discount coupon code panic for a 50% discount. That's my new blog uh, discussing the SVB mm. crisis this morning. The panic is the discount code. So I hope your listeners will check that out at richardduncaneconomics.com.
0: Well don't panic rather put panic into Richard's blog and you'll get 50% off. Uh, meanwhile, Richard, I think we'll get you back on the show again because this story isn't going away soon. And I think your point about needing to invest in the technologies, medical communications technologies of the future is a very important message. And ideally, if, it, if there are people in Washington who, so to speak, buy your arguments, then the next election might actually be rather interesting.
1: Thank you, Andrew. I'd, I'd love to come back on and discuss it further.